Since 2005, Blue Hat has been where the security research community and Microsoft come together as peers. To debate and discuss, share and challenge, celebrate and learn. On the Blue Hat podcast, join me, Nick Fillingham. And me, Wendy Zanoni, for conversations with researchers, responders and industry leaders, both inside and outside of Microsoft. Working to secure the planet's technology and create a safer world for all. And now, on with the Blue Hat podcast. Welcome to the Blue Hat Podcast, Dan Tentler, aka Vis. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan. Thank you for having me. Dan, uh, could you give us a little introduction? Who are you? What do you do here? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so my name is Dan Tentler. I'm one of the two founders of Phobos Group. Uh, we just turned seven this February. Uh, we are a tiny boutique consulting organization that helps companies do a variety of different types of things on the topic of security from uh, offensive and defensive related things to architecture, to threat intel, to incident response. We're sort of a full service custom shop. So um, we do some sometimes commodity stuff, sometimes a lot more colorful, interesting stuff. And uh, it usually means I end up full of stories. Which is in part why you're here on the podcast. Yeah. You presented at Blue Hat 2023. Now, folks that are on the Twitters or on the Mastodons have been around bulletin boards and stuff may know you as this. Would that be would that be fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of Dan's in the world, and so to uh, like, I, I remember one one DefCon. Oh man, I don't know how long ago it was, but there were seven Dan's in one photograph that we took just for fun because there were seven Dan's in one at one party. You could have a so, you could like, have a Dan village. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of Dan's, and so like you use a handle and it makes your it, it helps you stand out a little bit more from all the other Dan's. <laughs> so uh, this, uh, you know, is there mm. is there a quick sort of little history of how this, why this? Because I couldn't, I couldn't quite, like, I couldn't quite range the, the letters of Dan Tentler or, like, say them in such a way that they became this. So I'm assuming it's not related right. to your actual name. No, not at all. Okay. No, it's actually shorthand for a longer handle, which is Visago, which is a typo from when I was 16 or 15 or something like that. And that is Visago? Yeah, Visago. It's, it's, it's a typo. The short version of the story is uh, I'm, I was 15 or 16 or something like that. I had just gone through at the time what a fifteen-year-old could call a nasty breakup, and uh, I was the in worst a movie. in your life so far. <laughs> sure, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Because um, I'll, I'll tell you, life life gets a lot more interesting after you turn fifteen. I, I was sat in the movie theater. I was watching a this old Jeff Goldblum movie called Hideaway, and the premise of the movie is that like a, a demon possesses somebody, and this demon is like killing people and making a castle out of their bones, and I was like there's a role model. And so I basically changed my Nick that night on several bulletin boards I was on, but I typoed, I typoed the, the name. I thought it was Visago. It was actually Vasago. And I had no idea at the time. This was like, I guess some kind of biblical reference or something like that. And it stuck. Um, and so I was Visago for years and years and years on IRC and bulletin boards. Um, and then people didn't want to type that much. So it, it was Visago. And then it got shortened to like Visi. And then it became Vis, and then it's been Vis since I, I don't remember. But it's really amusing going and finding other people on the internet with the same typo, because every once in a while, I'll run into one. And there's like a, a handful. But um, a really hilarious story is that there was a guy whose handle was Vasago, like spelled correctly with an A, uh, who was the author of a script that people used to use in the 90s for MIRC, if you're old enough to remember MIRC. Yeah, I remember Merck. Yeah, I love Merck. Cut my yeah, teeth on Merck. Right, same. And so there was a, a, a guy who wrote a script called phoenix.irc for Merck. And 
people can't spell. And so for a decade on IRC, on Fnet, and Freenode, I guess, uh, people were asking me when I was going to release the next version of Phoenix.irc. And I had no idea what they were on about because I'd never heard of this guy and I'd never heard of uh, Phoenix.irc. But at some point, I just started giving people bogus answers. They're like, oh, yeah, it'll come out tomorrow. Just keep an eye out. I, <laughs> so yeah, it was super bizarre. I have no idea what came of it. And I have no idea if any of this ever made it back to the guy who actually wrote Phoenix.irc. But that was like, like dumb, accidental Nick typo squatting in the 90s. So, so apart from apart from uh, Merck and and yeah. uh, uh, misspelt Jeff Goldblum references, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what was fifteen uh, year old Dan Tentler doing? Was that the beginning of your your sort of uh, career, so to speak? Is that the beginning of the path that you're on right now? Does it start earlier? Does it start later? When do you become when do you become the Dan Tentler that we we know as the 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 speaker at Blue Hat twenty twenty three? So you sound like you're old enough to remember WIV, World War Four, WWIV bulletin boards. I may be old remember enough, but I don't know what that is. I'm sorry. I come from a okay. I come from a land down under where we uh, <laughs> we only got electricity and paved roads last year, so we're a little behind. Ah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. I think I'm old enough, but okay, fill us in. So you guys know. <laughs> You two know what bulletin boards are, right? Yes. Yes. Okay, so with WWIV, World War IV was just a a software that was a bulletin board. And you you basically would run this on an MS-DOS, you know, Pentium 2, 486, DX266, whatever you had at the time. With the turbo button that you... you, Yeah, that's right. It didn't do anything. And you'd, you'd plop a modem into that thing, and that modem would talk to the software, and it would receive phone calls, answer, and then it'd give you your BBS experience. Fun thing about World War IV or with, and was that as a lot of other follow-on softwares, Iniquity, Oblivion, Oblivion 2, for any old-school ASCII, ANSI artist types in the crowd, all those, I think WIV was the first. And from WIV, there were a bunch of like, there was like a feature set that people came to expect out of BBS software. And one of those feature sets was um, the ability to upload files and download files. Like what you now know today in corporate America as what I like to call the ocean of file share, where every company has one of these. It's some just junk pile back office Samba file share with terabytes of garbage and nonsense in it that everyone has rewrite access to, which now today, when you phrase it like that, sounds like an absolute security nightmare. Uh, this is a tiny, tiny microcosm of the same. So now you have a bunch of teenagers with access to some computer at the end of a phone line somewhere, wherever is in their local calling area that allows you to send and receive just arbitrary random files. And one of the things that DOS did differently than Unix systems do today is the order in which paths are um, are uh, kept track of. So like when you look at the path, like the execution path of like when you run you know, top or Apache or whatever, like with a, with a, a Unix system, it looks at the path variable and the path variable is full of a bunch of paths and it looks to those paths in that order. Well, with DOS, the, the directory you're in, the CWD, the current working directory is the beginning of the path. And so if you try to run anything, it doesn't matter what, it's going to look in the directory you're currently in first for whatever you're trying to run before it looks to the system paths, which ended up being kind of a nightmare for DOS boards because there was a bug that somebody discovered uh, that I used a lot as a kid, which was if you took like command.com, which was your command line interpreter, and you renamed it to pkonzip.exe and you uploaded it to a board, you would have pkonzip.exe go into the uploads directory. And then you would go and preview a zip file and you would 
pick any zip there and say preview the zip file and it would run your version of pkunzip.exe, the one you just uploaded, and not the system version of pkunzip. So you would instantly get a shell. Right. And I was like, oh, that's fun. And so, yeah, 15-year-old me in the 90s, like deleting people's bulletin boards because we got in some snit in high school or what have you. But like, I, I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but that was, that was pretty amusing. And then like later when BBSs started to get sunset because... People started getting their cable modems and people were getting online and then IRC happened. I got a really fun crash course into like, again, back in the 90s before there was like a NAT device or firewalls in the house. You had to buy extra IP addresses from your cable modem provider to get to have more than one computer in the house get online. And again, this is one of these like who in their right mind would do this? Like this is lunacy. Each workstation would get its own publicly routable IPv4 address directly on the internet, which is what? And uh, yeah, I was talking to printers in other neighborhoods and making them print stuff. And I was, uh, remember PC Anywhere? Oh yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, b b before WebEx, before, I mean, I know, maybe not before VNC, but like, it was like the Windows, you know, you want to control Windows from somewhere else, use PC Anywhere. You could like, same thing. This was before people understood that like, making something public means it's public. You could just open up PC Anywhere, and at the time, it would look on the local network you were on, like you were attached to other people's broadcast domains, I guess. And like, you could just connect to other people's PC Anywhere machines and do remote control their computers. And this is like 96 or 97, maybe 98, something like that. But yeah, it was, I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I was just screwing around. Because like, you open up PC Anywhere, and it like, there's a button, I, maybe it wasn't there wasn't a button or maybe it did it automatically. I forget, but it would show you like what it could see. And so you'd open PC anywhere and you're like, Hey, look, all my neighbors try one. I love that your curiosity, you still have it. I mean, I remember during blue hat 2023, we were back in February, you and I were standing there and we're at the podium and you're like, Oh, see this device. I discovered this thing. If you put your fingers on it, then it brings you to the, oh, yeah. the setting. And, and, and through this whole time of, of the conference getting to know you, I think you've explained, you had explained so many things to me, which leads me to <laughs> your talk. I liked the premise of your talk. I like how it kind of dug into here are the, you know, the, the, the tools and the tips and the tricks of the, what the original security folks would do. And, and this is why you need this. Now, if you could go into, you know, tell the audience about your talk and, and what led you to, to deciding to present on that and your thoughts around it. It's great. Sure, yeah. So my topic was uh, architecting for security the old ways. And it was essentially a talk that spoke to how people who operate computers and networks can use the stuff that we used back in like 2005 to bolster their security posture in very meaningful ways. Because in a lot of circumstances, the tools that I covered in my talk are just running under the hood of uh, expensive appliances anyway. Like to give you a, an example, in 2018, 2017, something like that, I was at 44Con in London, which is a, another security conference. And there was a German researcher that presented some findings surrounding, I believe it was a Fire IPX device, where he discovered that you could overwrite one of the parsers. So I think the P I think it's the PX device. I could be wrong, but it was the FireEye appliance that was responsible for like being between your, your locally hosted email server and the internet. And so it would like 
grab mail off the wire and it would like look at the mail to see if it was bad and it would like remove viruses and bad attachments and stuff like that and then send it along the line. Um, and so to do that I had to have file parsers and the file parsers would look at what file, the file type attachment that was attached to the email and then decide what to do. But it was all literally just Nginx and Python under the hood. And so what was happening was since it's a Unix system and everything ran as root, you could send a seven zip along the wire. And, and because of the way that you compress seven zip, you can do what are called absolute paths. So when you decompress that seven zip, it will just decompress to whatever the specific absolute path was. Well, in this case, the researcher figured out where the parser Python files are located on disk and had his payload overwrite one. And so it overwrote the parser for RTF files. And then he said, and then he would send a RTF file through, which would then trigger whatever script he overwrote the parser with, which he did Python interpreter, uh, which was a, a C2 framework, a, a shell. And so this guy was able to send two emails through a, a Fire IPX appliance and get a root shell on it. And the reason for that premise is exactly the same as the with the World War IV BBS story that I told earlier, which was that you're taking advantage of these low-level like operating system. Like this is how the thing is supposed to work. It doesn't even necessarily qualify as a bug per se, but this is like the way that these things are architected. A, they don't know their history, and B, they are unaware of how operating system level stuff works, and they and they don't build precautions into their tooling to keep track of the fact that like if you ask a thing the right way, you can just use its like intentional it works this way on purpose functionality to, to in, in an abusive way. And so back in 2005, there was not a security industry, at least not one that I was aware of. Um, and so if you wanted to defend your infrastructure from bad guys, you didn't have a FireEye, you know, you didn't have Palo Alto, you didn't have an industry there, you didn't have a, a Twitter feed full of 10,000 people happy to give you free advice. Like th none of this existed. You had to figure it out for yourself. And the tools and techniques you had available to you were like sysadmin stuff. Like you have control of the network, you have control of the operating system stack, you have control of the file system. What can you do to like keep them out? And like my brain, because I'm a dork, keeps going to like be, be Bowser. Mario is coming and, and he's got mushrooms and they're not for you. So like <laughs> be aware, you know, there's this crazy mushroom guy coming and he, and you, you, you run the castle, you own the castle. You got to keep Mario out. So like use your Koopas, use your flame traps, use your bridges, everything at your disposal to make Mario's life as miserable as you possibly can. And what I've noticed is that there are some people that sort of understand that that is the case. And there is other people that d don't seem to care. And so, uh, but now, you know, I'm, I'm old and crusty. So now I have to tell people literally half my age, Hey, there is this thing called fail to ban. That's probably older than you that you might want to look into that we have been using for 25 years, if not more to stop bad guys from doing bad guy stuff. And instead of having to like spend weeks and weeks and weeks writing like Yara rules and dealing with firewall ACLs and all this other stuff, or like complex cloud dashboards where you can't tell where the controller you're looking for does what, or each region has its own firewall zone you have to keep track of and nothing send log, sends logs to the right place. Like this thing was invented like 20 years ago that basically says, hey, if that IP address fails SSH login five times, ban it. That's it. 
that's the logic and it works like a champ and it's been it's been glorious for 25 years and it continues to work and then now you can push a button and deploy a thousand cloud instances to all over the world well if you can do that and then you just imbibe the logs from all of those fail to ban instances you now have your own threat intel feed because now you have like your own fleet of sensors that are all detecting well, fail to ban comes out of the box with SSH brute force protection, but you can, you can tell it to read any text file because that's how Linux systems tend to work because everything is a text file. And so since everything is a text file, you can read and write to practically anything, including device drivers. It's like Legos, but it's software and it's all, and for the most part, plain English. But yeah, so the whole concept of the talk was like, this is the stuff that we used to do before there was an industry. And this is how we, I mean, and then to that end, like, if you were to unwrap a FireEye device, what's under the hood? Nginx, grep, set, awk, fail to ban, SSH, open SSL. Like it's all the stuff that we were using 20 years ago. They just put a big red wrapper around it and sold it as an appliance. And so if you understand how this stuff works under the hood, it makes you a lot more formidable as a blue teamer or even as a red teamer, uh, understanding that now like this cloud thing is unavoidable and anybody can spin up 20 new instances at their leisure at the touch of a button. And it, it makes for very interesting times on both attack and defense topics. Because as an attacker, like if you block my infrastructure, great, I can just spin up new infrastructure in another country. Good luck chasing me down. And as a defender, it works the same way. It's like, well, I could spin up 500 uh, Tor nodes. And, and if I could get them plugged in fast enough, then like I could potentially detect stuff in Tor coming for me. And so like... It's still like software Legos, basically, but it's just gotten horribly bigger. And so the whole the whole premise of the talk was to show people like it's actually easier if you think about it in the old ways. Because think of it this way: like a bug comes out, any bug, pick a bug, like pick pick I don't know the, the new ping of death, the new the new ICMP remote code execution that's affecting Windows. I think it got patched very recently, but it's like a couple of weeks old. Um, that bug, well, I guess it's, since it's a Windows bug, it'll have like Microsoft will give it a code name, and Microsoft will give it a like a serial number, basically, like you got MS, MS 23, it'll be MS 23, something, something, something. Oracle will give it one. Apache will give it one. IBM will give it one. Tenable will give it one. MITRE will give it one. CVSS will give it one. That's, that's seven just off the top of my head. And if, and each one of those is going to have a slightly different impact number, right? And so like, if you're a defender and one bug comes out, there's like 15 of these different taxonomies that exist and you have to like grapple with all of that uh, which one is the scary one which do i have to care about the most what if they're two contending where the authors of the bug disagree on the severity like you as the defender are stuck in the middle there having if you subscribe to that type of analysis of of like bugs and so like you can skip all that and just say like does it give the attackers a shell yes or no like, will it take my box offline? Yes or no? Do, do the attackers have to have access to the equipment already to abuse this thing? Yes or no? And so, like, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance that gets added to stuff. But the reality is it's it's not that difficult if you understand even just a little bit about, like, what actually happens under the hood. I think we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> You've solved all of InfoSec uh, in, in uh, 11 minutes. Thank you, Dan. Um no, no, no. So stay, staying with this theme. So the, the title of your talk was was Architecting for Security, The Old Ways with Dan Tentler. And I, I have to say, Dan, as I saw the papers come in and I saw just just the, t- the title, I didn't get it, wasn't, I had, wasn't the point yet where I'd read through the abstract. 
I had this uh, immediate sort of cynical sort of read on that. And, you know, it was like, it was like old man yells at cloud. I was like, it was yeah. Grandpa Simpson, like, you oh, know, yes. telling the young people to, to, to stop picking the lemons from the lemon tree. I'm, I'm merging multiple Simpsons episodes together there. Um, but you had a couple of, a couple of like key phrases in your slides that I, that really struck me when, when I, you know, saw you present. Um, and I, I've just sort of, I've got, I've got a couple of snips here from it. So oh, the cool. first was like, all the old ways still work. Like to mm-hmm. me, that was like the one of the big takeaways is like all the old ways still work. And I think yeah. you, I took that to, to mean if you are someone that's been in this space for a long time, you know, don't throw away your old knowledge. Don't throw away the the techniques and the, and the learning and the skills from 20 years ago because they're still relevant. But then also mm-hmm. to the p- folks that are new to the industry and coming into the industry um, or even, you know, not that new, knowing the history of how security folks did this stuff 10, 15, 20 years ago is very important and and maybe as important as learning all of the sort of the new latest and and greatest techniques as well. So first of all, did I get that right? Would you? Yeah, agree with you that? totally did. Sweet. And then and then the other one that I thought was really cool, and then I'll I'll shut up too. But the <laughs> put everything behind a VPN. Like I don't oh, care yeah. what it is, it needs yeah. to be behind a VPN. I don't care. There's yeah. no there's no example where it doesn't need to be behind a VPN. I thought that was that's right. Um, I'm not skilled enough in like network architecture management to be able to defend that statement, but I just love the how emphatic you were about that that go do like everything behind a VPN, everything behind a VPN. Yeah, well, you are. I'll tell you, you are. <laughs> Got it. Uh, and 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 for two, uh, the whole fact that you can do remote code execution with ICMP today, right now, means if I can ping it, I can shell it. So if I can ping it over the internet and it's vulnerable to the thing, I get a shell. Do you really want me to have a shell on your equipment because I can ping your equipment? Yeah. That should be a t-shirt. <laughs> that should yeah. be a t-shirt. If I can ping it, I can shell it. <laughs> Actually, I just, I just found the slide here. And then your follow-up point was the more I see, the more I can learn about you. The more I see, the more I can, I can, I can mess with. So in your, you, you both have long tenured professional experiences. In these long tenured professional experiences, if, if I ask the question, is it usually the same people at a company that, that, maintain the equipment on the inside of the network as well as outside of the network that's still owned by the company. It's generally the same department. It may not be the same humans, but it's like usually one department or one, you know, division, depending on the size of the company. And usually those decisions all will roll up to like a very small number of decision makers, like usually one or two people. And so at the end of the day, if you look at the outside of a company and you see big problems, the chances are incredibly high that you're going to see probably worse on the inside of the network than you do on the outside of the network. And so you can learn a lot based on that people are creatures of habit. They find patterns and they repeat the patterns. And so if you are cool, like quoting myself, you know, if, <laughs> if, if you see a company that's rocking IIS 8.5 on their perimeter, like, you know, there's going to be monsters under that hood. So that, like so that feels if, like if, sort of good guidance for a red teamer, right? So like if you're red teaming and you see that as an example, then maybe you can extrapolate to there's going to be more stuff both on the outside and on the inside? Not maybe. Uh, not maybe. Got it, got it, got it. <laughs> not got it, got maybe. It. 
So a really good way to wrap your head around it, if you're not technical, is, you know, when you go camping and you're in the, the northern half of the U.S. or in like Northern California or like the, you know, the top third of the western seaboard, there are usually signs that talk about like how to deal with the potential of bears being in the vicinity. Mm. And they say like, don't leave food out, like make sure it's locked up, sometimes hang it from a tree, because sometimes bears, well... Imagine if you were going into a scenario like that and you weren't the one that was camping and you wanted to make sure that some campers had an incredibly bad time. How could you exploit this situation knowing that there are bears, understanding how bears do if you really wanted to make life miserable for like, you know, the glamping family over there and the $4 million RV that like they should really have brought a tent. Like you leave food out. It's really straightforward, right? Well, it's the same way here. If you see people running a network like that, there are certain assumptions you can make. Right now, one of them is, if I can ping it, I can shell it. And so if there's IIS 8.5 on the perimeter and I can ping it, I'm getting a shell on an IIS box for a multitude of reasons. And then at that point, there's a lot of very well-known, very bad, no, I shouldn't say bad behavior. It's, it's more like lack of hygiene, lack of maintenance. Uh, that you can assume is present. And if you can make, like smoke testing these assumptions is really, really easy. It's literally like, look at what version of something they're running. Is that version 10 years old? Has it not been patched in a decade? If the leadership who has to own that asset is okay with that asset being there, they are probably okay with other things in the same vein of being there. And so if you find something that's 10 years old on the perimeter, you're going to find something that's probably older inside the land. And so like, I'm the one over in the corner, Grandpa Simpson screaming, like <laughs> old man yells at cloud saying, you're doing it wrong. And nobody likes to be told that their baby is ugly. And so I'm that guy, sadly, that is telling people that their baby is ugly <laughs> because the baby is actually on fire and they're not paying attention to the baby that's on fire. And it's like, hey, like maybe bathe the kid once in a while and it won't catch fire. I think we need a, a metaphor counter for this episode here. And I think we get to ding every time Dan introduces a new one. Yeah. So I think, you know, this all gets summarized, I think, Dan, by saying the fundamentals are still the fundamentals. The fundamentals are still the most important thing to go learn, get the fundamentals right, and then maybe, you know, think about, you know, putting a, an AI you know, deep learning uh, appliance uh, somewhere on your machine, uh, you know, do the, the the cutting edge stuff second, do the fundamentals first. Is that sort of a, a TLDR? Uh, yes. And I would also add that all the super fancy high-end stuff relies on a strong foundation of the fundamentals underneath. And if that doesn't exist, then the, the super fancy space age crazy stuff that you're doing isn't going to work either at all or as well as you had hoped. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, also the thing uh, to remember is that uh, in a lot of cases, like, do you know what Bayesian filtering is? You ever heard Bayesian filtering? Like the mathematical okay. thing? Yes. yes, yes, Bayesian filtering. Um, that's how email spam filters work, Bayesian filtering. And basically the way that it, uh, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, I'm going to dumb it down a lot. But basically when you feed it, Please email, use at least three metaphors. <laughs> okay. Um, when you f when you feed spam to a Bayesian filter, basically what it does is it extracts every word, like every every word in that email, including all the like mime headers and all that stuff, 
and it creates basically a, a like a frequency analysis that says here's the different words that appeared in this email and here's how often they appear and and then it creates two piles of them one for good and one for bad and so when you classify an email as spam it looks at all the words in that email and it says these are the words that are associated with bad the, the words and what order they're in is associated with you know bad email and these are the words and what order they're in that's associated with a good email and so that's how bayesian filters work because the more you train the filter, the better clarity it has for what is good and what is bad. And for 15, 15 years now, they have called Bayesian spam filters machine learning or AI. And it's like, it's, it's neither. It's literally just like a frequency analysis chart. And so like up until GPT came very recently, that's what people were pa- passing as AI. Uh, no, it's just a Bayesian filter. It's literally your spam filter that's being used for something else and not spam, but like Postfix and Sendmail and, you know, uh, Thunderbird have been using this for 20 years, probably more. And so it's really interesting that like, there's this practice of like, you take all these fundamental tools and you wrap them up in a big cellophane wrapper and you put a label on it. And like under the hood, it's generally speaking the same stuff over and over and over again. They just keep unwrapping it and changing the wrapper. It's like, you know, if I'm buying an orange and you put it in a paper bag or a plastic bag, like it's still the same orange on the inside. It's just the thing on the outside keeps changing. <laughs> I think I might have been one metaphor, but sorry, I'll let it slide. <laughs> I was trying to count there. You, you do well with your metaphors. <laughs> it's like you practice I, them. <laughs> I, well, it's a muscle you grow. And yeah. so like when, when, when you're trying to make a point about a very technical topic, yeah. um, in a lot of cases, the people to whom you're trying to make this point, they just want the TLDR. They don't care about the technical details. They have no interest in like OS query now is just a cyborg, like a bored out version of what Tripwire was like 15 years ago. And like, you can still install Tripwire and use it now, but people are using OS query because it's better. And so like, they're like, I don't know what either of these two things are. All I'm hearing is a bunch of clicking sounds speak English. And you're like, okay, cool. Who would make a better car thief? And they're like, what? Like, who would make a better car thief? A person that spent 15 years as a master mechanic repairing all sorts of different vehicles or some kid that watched three or four YouTube videos about how to break into a car. And they'd be like, well, obviously the master mechanic. Well, right, exactly. So you're proving my point. If you know the ins and outs of like what's under the hood and you know how these things work, you're going to be the first person to be like, that's how you disable the alarm. That's how you disable the GPS tracking. That's how you uh, unlock the steering wheel. Here's how you like you know, do all these other interesting things. And so like, if you have a mastery of a thing, then that mastery can be used for both attack and defense. If you don't have a mastery of the thing, then the best thing you could hope for is maybe Googling it, fake it till you make it, and then you're the next solar winds. And so like, the whole premise of like, I'm one of those people, and this is a very unpopular opinion, that security can't really be a starter career. Because to do security, you have to understand the thing that you're securing. And if you've never done technical work and you've never spent time working with the thing that you're trying to secure, how are you supposed to secure it? You don't know how it works. Like the attackers are going to know how it works better than you do. And then you're outgunned and that's it. And so like the very first Enigma conference, Rob Joyce, the former, he's back in there now, but he was like the head of NSA Tau, TIO, I guess the Taylor Access Operations Group. He's like the guy that was in charge of the division of the NSA that, that has people go and hack other countries for 
governmental reasons. He was on stage basically saying, if we know more about your environment than you do, you're going to have a bad time. And that's like the banner statement there is like, if the attackers know more about your environment than you do, you're going to have a tough time defending that environment. Like, it doesn't really matter what the environment is. If they know more than you do, like, if knowledge is power, then you're giving it to them by making it plainly available on your perimeter or, you know, telegraphing to the attackers that I'm cool running 20-year-old unpatched software that talks to the internet. And so, like, all of these things telegraph stuff. And if you're, if you're, if your security whiskers are tuned correctly, you can pick up on that telegraphing and, and say, Oh God. And at some point, it's literally copy-paste after you see, you know, 100, 200 of these things. I want to jump in here because you are a wealth of knowledge. But what what I I appreciate that I learned from you at the Blue Hat Conference 2023 was that you have this knowledge and you've been doing this for so long. But what I love is like, you know, you and I were talking, you explained how like Mastodon worked on the back end, you know, on the, you know, the cyber in the hallway. But and I, lo- I like how you take the time to explain it. And then you don't have that, that vibe about you where you're like, hey, do you know what this is? And I was like, no. And you're like, okay, okay. So you just back up. And that is so important for the next generation of security folks to have people that are, you know, not in that mindset like, oh, you don't know what this is. I, your your knowledge and your willingness to explain and take the time and obviously everything that you have detailed just in this podcast has been really useful. But I, I have to touch on something from Blue Hat where you're asking me about, do you know this, this, this? No, no, no. Let me show you. You pull out this bag in your backpack and <laughs> <laughs> I will sanitize it says spy stuff. <laughs> And tell me about this spy stuff briefly. I know we're running out of time, but just wanted to touch on that because that was just a gem. That was a gem seeing this this packet of spy stuff. And I know it's just security tooling and whatnot, but what's in there? Uh, It's basically like three or four security toys and largely just like USB cables and chargers and stuff. Because if you've ever bought a device, that device had like a US, in, in most cases, a USB charging port. And if you have devices that are more than five years old or more than 10 years old, they have different USB plugs. And so like, you're going to have a USB micro cable. You're going to have a USB mini cable. You're going to have a USB C cable. And if you're afflicted by owning an iPhone, then you're going to have all of their different cables as well. And so you have a bundle like this full of cables to just put power in all of these different devices, uh, who all will knife fight in the parking lot before they agree on a standard, which I'd love to watch. Uh, and, I heard and Europe. So my, my bag. Isn't yeah. Europe standardizing yes. USB-C now? Yeah, I think, I think, I don't remember who it was, but I think it was some sort of parliamentary court or some sort of government sued Apple and said, you gotta, you gotta pick a standard. You gotta, yeah. And so like, <laughs> Apple got sued and said, no, you can't, you can't be, you can't keep doing these custom everything plugs. You gotta, you gotta go with the standard. But yeah, so like there was like a Proxmark in there. There was a, um, there was a Proxmark. There's an RTL SDR. Flipper. There was a, a Flipper Zero and a whole bunch of cables. And that's kind of it. So like in terms of toys, there's like a small number of toys, but the vast majority, majority of it is like just a slurry of different cables. And, and the, the concept was so, um, I've discovered that traveling in general is a lot easier if your carry-on or your backpack 
instead of having a giant rat's nest of cables at the bottom, which is always a nightmare to dig through, is you have like these little, there's a company called Maxpedition that makes like these tactical, like thick nylon zipped little pouches. And so I have a bunch of these little pouches and each one has different stuff in them. I have one as a bathroom kit, one is all my cables. Another one is like, just like certain types of hacker equipment that like, and so uh, depending on where I'm going and what I'm doing, I can just grab these things off of my travel shelf and throw them in a bag instead of having to like lift a rat's nest of cables out of one backpack and put it in, a, in another. Um, and so because my company is tiny and we don't have like a sales or marketing department, the way that we tell the world we exist is me going on stage and presenting. And so for a while before the plague, I was traveling once every month and a half, once every two months. And so depending on the length of the trip, I have different sized bags. And so there's this like prep that I do before I travel of like what stuff goes into what bag. And the interesting ones have that little badge on them. And the badge actually came from a BoJack Horseman episode where he had like a duffel bag of the same. Uh, and I was like, that's clever. And at the time I had a friend who had a um, an embroidery machine and could make custom patches. We were laughing about it online and like, a few months later at a conference, this guy shows up and goes here and hands me these patches that say that. And so I just stuck them on my like, how can I give the TSA the best flavor of heart attack? And so I found like the, the rat's nest of cables that used to be at the bottom of my backpack that I just stuffed into this little pouch. I put that label on it. And so that if they decide to pull me into secondary inspection, because they see this rat's nest of cables, they pull out that thing and they look at it and there's this immediate, like you can see their face. They go, uh, and then it was really funny is occasionally I'll travel with this thing, which is my, um, hack the Pentagon challenge coin I got for, I, I did the, um, this is like one actual official challenge coin I actually have, or some NSA stickers and something like that. So you put that in the spy stuff pouch. And if you get pulled over for secondary and they delay you, you get a little bit of a show as the person rooting through your stuff. <laughs> changes color in their face as they realize, oh God, I may be actually like, it's all, it's all BS. Obviously I'm not a right. government agent, but like, they don't know. They have and a, so, this is happening moment. Yeah. This is real. This is yeah. what I've been trained yeah. for. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And and what I've noticed lately is, is after, as the years progress, like they seem less and less impressed by this stuff and more impressed by the fact that I took a leftover burrito and tinfoil and put that in my backpack. That got me pulled into secondary like, and it was really funny. Like they had no idea what a burrito looked like on x-ray. And so it was like a big hubbub, but yeah. So the whole, the whole story of the little, the little badges is that the pouches come with like the soft side of Velcro on them because they're intended to have American flags or whatever tactical nonsense people in shooter glasses will put on those um, pouches. And so I wanted to put something a little more interesting on them. And so I did a custom thing. It was just literally a silly, nothing joke um that like i honestly forget is there until i pull the thing out and people are like what <laughs> so it's it's fun i think we need a whole series of, of <laughs> stories with this uh, and especially you know gadgets that you've procured or acquired or created over the years but one i wanted to ask you about now this is an audio mm. podcast apologies that i'm going to do this thing but i have to behind you i see the dumpster fire cartoon which i i love or i think i do yep but then below that what there's this sort of like light board, which which I'm my my initial thought was that it was actually a calendar, but it is what it is. Mm -hmm. So so okay, so I can see twelve uh, columns, and then I'm assuming up to thirty one rows, mm -hmm. and but but I, I can't quite wrap my head around the lights that are on or off. I see it's connected to something. Is there yep. anything more to this, or is it just a calendar? That looks cool. 
Both. Okay. Um, so this this thing up here, um, did either of you watch Invader Zim a hundred yes. trillion years ago? Okay, so yes. this is Zim and Gurr in a dumpster on fire. In the dumpster fire. Okay, got it. Yep. Was and it, it was the precursor drawn... to the Everything is Fine dumpster fire cartoon, or is this post that? No, this is much more recent. Okay. So uh, the, the This is Fine dog came from a comic artist named Casey Green. Everyone has seen it. It's permeated the internet at this point. Um, but this was drawn by Ricky Simons, who is the voice of Gerb from the show. Ah, cool. He, he was pretty active on Twitter for a very long time. And I think he has an Etsy. And I'm pretty sure he has a Patreon as well. And for a while, I can't remember why, he was trying to raise money. I don't remember whether it was just for himself or some cause, but like he was selling art. And I was like, that's pretty cool. And so I have assigned Ricky Simons' original like Zim and Gur in a dumpster fire, always on camera behind me. I love um, it. Yeah. And this calendar is Simone Yetch's, I can't remember what you call it, but this is like, you know who Simone Yetch is? Unfortunately, no, sorry. No. She was like, I can't swear, can I? It's going to get, can I, is it going to get bleeped? She, she, she was formerly the queen of shitty robots. Oh, uh, yes, of you, course, of course. Yes. Yeah, well, of course I know her. Yeah, I know her as that. I know her as the Queen of Shitty Robots, yeah. Yes, yes. So she built the toothbrush machine and the like yep. the machine that slaps her in the face and like the hot dog and like the... She built all this stuff and she built herself a brand. And then as soon as she started getting like legit interest from huge companies, she s- slowed down on the on the robot building and started building other projects. And as that progressed, she, her popularity continued to increase. And I can't remember why she made it, but she made this calendar. And, and it was for her to track something, and I don't recall what it was, but it was like so popular that people demanded that that it become mass manufactured. And so she opened basically a store to sell these things. And I this is one of the original Kickstarter, like first ones um, that came out. It was like the first or second wave or something like that. And so basically it's just a calendar. It lets you tap a day and the day will light up. Um, and you can use, you can track whatever you want to track. I'm tracking, uh, this is my workout. I'm tired of being pear shaped. So this is my workout calendar. <laughs> oh, um, so the, are the, are the lit up days, the days that you worked out? Yes. So I started uh, in December, which is, uh, the very far, this one. Yeah. So December, this was last December. And then in January, I did absolutely every single day in January. And then in February, I took there's a huge piece missing because I was traveling most Uh-oh. of February. Yeah, you're at, you're at Blue Hat. I think we're responsible for a couple of yeah. those uh, unlit, okay. yeah. unlit lights. Yeah. But yeah, and so that's that's what I'm using that for. And then you can't really see it; it's off camera. But like next to it, there's that thing, and that is because I'm lucky enough to have a friend that works in the film industry, um, and she is like a, a set painter. Um, she does like um, she helps build the sets of different uh shows and movies and uh when i met her she was working on the expanse and oh, i love the, that show and the book yeah. series. i love the book series and, and so all of that stuff on that board are like placards and stickers and stuff from the set of the expanse uh i think the third or fourth season or something like that where where, where we're le- they were left over and so like they would have these custom stickers printed for like crates and stuff in the background as actors were doing their thing. Um, this is all just silly background nonsense to make the set look more authentic. There was a mountain of it. And so she sent it to me. That was fun. Um, That's really cool that you, you framed it, but I know we could probably talk to you for 40 hours if we needed to, but based on time, I'm going to have one last question for you. And that question 
That question is kind of ties into how I was saying you're you know, tons of knowledge. You're really patient and um, great with explaining things for folks like myself that didn't understand various concepts. Is there somewhere where folks that are listening to this podcast could reach out to you if they had questions or just wanted to you know ask more about your talk from Blue Hat or if you're comfortable sharing how they sure, can reach yeah. out? That'd be great. So I used to spend quite a lot of time on Twitter, uh, but I don't anymore for obvious reasons. Um, I'm now on Mastodon. Uh, I'm same handle this, but I'm on Mastodon.social. So uh, Mastodon.social forward slash at this is me. Uh, you can email me dan at phobos.io. But that's that's largely where I am at this point. Um, if, you, if you find my Twitter profile, it's the same handle, um, this V-I-S-S on Twitter. But it just basically I stopped posting and it uh, it just links back to my Mastodon account. So I'm on there and I'm on a handful of other little social network places. But uh, I'm generally pretty easy to track down, and I'm happy to have discussions uh, about interesting stuff with lots of strangers because that's kind of what I do most of the day anyway. I've fallen squarely into the home automation rabbit hole, and so I've plugged way more stuff into Home Assistant than I probably reasonably should have. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to talk people's ear off about that um, in, in addition to security. But yeah, I'm, I'm around. I continue to be around. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Wonderful. And before we end, what's next for you? Where can folks find you? Are you speaking at any upcoming events or anything coming up that you can think of that's notable that you would like to share? Yeah, I made the CFP for a, a conference called Security Fest in Gothenburg, Sweden in April. No, April? No, May. Sorry, end of May. Uh, I'll be in Gothenburg, Sweden presenting at Security Fest. There's a handful of other conferences that I'm waiting for them to open up their CFP uh, or the details aren't solidified yet, but that's the next known good one that I'm aware of. Um, and that, that'll let's, yeah, that's May. Beyond May, I, I can't see yet because the conferences tend to only release their uh, CFPs and their dates and stuff like three months before they happen. And so there might be a few more quarter three, quarter four, but for now, just a security fest in Gothenburg. Um, and if I'm lucky, you'll have me back here. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I would suggest folks just monitor uh, Dan or Viss's uh, Mastodon account because I'm sure that's where you can find updated information on where to see him at following con conferences. But thank you so much, Dan, for coming and speaking on the Blue Hat podcast. Had a great time and we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll see you all next time. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Hat Podcast. If you have feedback, topic requests, or questions about this episode, please email us at bluehat at microsoft.com or message us on Twitter at MSFTBlueHat. Be sure to subscribe for more conversations and insights from security researchers and responders across the industry by visiting bluehatpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.